So it's all here. The story of our time with the barcode. That was President Lyndon Baines Johnson upon the dedication of his presidential library in 1971. Since then, the library has played host to the biggest names and best minds of our day who have helped to tell the story of our times through candid, revealing conversations with the Barkoff. This podcast delivers them straight to you. Welcome to With the Barkoff. I'm Mark Updegrove. Jennifer Palmieri has spent her career in democratic politics. In 2013, she became the White House Director of Communications for Barack Obama and went on to become the Director of Communications for Hillary Clinton's 2016 presidential bid. After Secretary Clinton's loss, she wrote, Dear Madam President, the number one New York Times bestseller. Her new book, she proclaims, is a manifesto for women to move beyond the bonds of patriarchy toward true gender equity. Jennifer, welcome to With the Bark Off. We are delighted to have you with us today. I'm really happy to be with you. Thanks, Mark. Well, I want to talk about your wonderful book, She Proclaims, but before doing so, I, I want to just delve into your marvelous career in politics. You've worked as a junior staffer in the White House for Bill Clinton. Uh, you went on to become the White House Communications Director for Barack Obama and the Director of Communications for Hillary Clinton in her 2016 campaign. How did you get into the world of politics? Uh, my mother, uh, I was born in Mississippi, actually, and my mom worked um, as a volunteer for Trent Lott's uh, first congressional race. Um, and she would put, she had me pass out pamphlets, would like post me in front of Jerry Lee's supermarket in Pascagoula and hand out flyers about him. And ever since then, and like, I think that was, it was a, I think it was a special election. It was like 72 or 73. I have been hooked. I was really into Watergate, <laughs> paid a lot of attention to that as a, you know, second and second grade. And I was very fortunate that Leon Panetta happened to be my congressman. I went to high school in California. My dad had been in the Navy. And um, when I went to college, he was my congressman. I interned for him. And, you know, talk about being able to learn from somebody who was just a great public servant, understood all of it, you know, politics, policy, how you actually get something done, how you bring people along with you. And, um, so that I was just really lucky. And I went with him to the White House because Bill Clinton appointed him to be the head of the budget office and then to be his chief of staff. So that's how I got in it. Was it difficult at that time to rise in that world as a woman? It, I did not think it was. It, you know, when I got to, when I started working, I graduated from college in 1988. So when I started working full time, I thought that the women's movement, I, I thought of that as something in the past and that mm -hmm. that question was settled. I understood, you sort of intuited just by watching how hard the women around me worked. I intuited that women had to work a little harder than men, that we had a higher bar, that we really needed to make ourselves useful um, in order to, uh, to in order to fit in. But I did think that we were on a trajectory to being able to achieve the same success that men did, and that you know you would see the statistics move uh, on like pay, you know, pay equity, for example, and, um, you know, things like the first woman president or Congress becoming, you know, becoming, uh, that there being equity in terms of the seats held in Congress. And 
I looked around and that wasn't happening. <laughs> so I w- thought really hard about why have we, ha- why have women stagnated? And um, that was why I wrote this particular book. What do you think the deciding factor was in Hillary Clinton's tough loss in 2016? Well, there isn't a deciding factor, right? When you lose a race by so little, any one factor could have been determinative. You know, that's why we will say, she didn't have a good enough message of the economy. You're like, sure, okay. <laughs> she didn't, you know, uh, people say, she didn't spend enough time in Wisconsin. You're like, okay. Um, but although actually there are for people who say, well, she didn't spend enough time in Wisconsin and Michigan, we lost Pennsylvania and we put everything we had into Pennsylvania, right? And without Pennsylvania, those other two states would not have mattered. Um, I think that, I think it was a, I think that there is, I think what it revealed, what that, what his win revealed to me was a, and, and all along in that entire cycle, what I saw was a brokenness and in uh, and, and the democracy that it had get gotten, um, you know, sort of perverted to the point where three million—you could win a race by three million votes, but still lose an election. Um, that there was all of these frustrations that had been roiling sort of under the surface in America that came to the surface, and you know, we still see that playing out now. This reckoning that was sort of due to be happened about uh, on race—you know, given the founding of the country on slavery and the fact that women were not were disenfranchised from the start. These all of these things have been building, building, building um, till. Till now. And then I think when you add on top of that, what I had not appreciated going into the race, working for Hillary, and it sounds silly in retrospect, I did not appreciate how hard it was going to be to elect the first woman president. Mm-hmm. I didn't appreciate how important it was that we did not have a model in our heads of what a female president looked like, how we would, and how that would manifest itself and sort of the coverage of her and doubts that people had about her. Not because everybody, not because all reporters are sexist or voters are. But there's something about her we didn't recognize. She, we had a lot of questions about her motivations because we're not used to seeing women in this role. It sounds, that sounds what I'm saying may sound like a dated, dated way of thinking, given that it was 2016 and now we're in 2020. But that's just how powerful, I think, the unconscious sort of bias that we hold in our heads of what a leader is supposed to look and sound like. And all of these factors combined were just too much. Hillary Clinton was ahead in the polls. Uh, you won the popular vote by almost 3 million mm-hmm. votes. How do you get over a loss like that, having come so close to the White House? So, I, you know, I wrote, and, you know, I wrote this book, Dear Madam President, and I write about, I write about this particular problem in, in that. And um, I thought that we were going to win, right? I, there were times where I, in September, I thought we were going to lose. I thought, why, why are we going to be people who have to stop this guy, you know, after he just blew through the Republican primary. But I didn't feel, you know, I, I, I knew on election night, I was not going to feel a real sense of accomplishment because what I've come to learn really matters is not whether you win or lose, it's the effort you put into um, something. Hillary always talks about, I think it's, is it um, the trying? It's all on the trying. It's, you know, and it's like one of the, our famous poets who I'm blanking on now. But, uh, and I think that if I put, I put all of my effort into something that really matters. And I had a moment like on Friday before the election, I was like, okay, 
I did everything I could. Um, and I let myself for about a half hour enjoy that, that feeling of being at the end of something, knowing you did everything you could. And when we lost, I was devastated. I mean, I described it as like, it felt like, it felt like the movie scene that you don't ever see where you don't save the world just in time, but the world explodes, right? That is what it felt like on Wednesday, November 9th. I thought I was, I was waking up into a different universe and just had terrified. It was just terrified, free floating fear for weeks. But the fact that I was part of the effort to, that did everything they could to stop this from happening made it, made it easier for me to find a way to sort of funnel what I learned. It's like, okay, I learned something important here and I am desperate to make something of that to make this loss matter and have some sort of meaning. And that was why I wrote um, Dear Madam President. But I, I do think if you're part of something like that, and I know that a lot of women I worked with felt the same way, it was, we didn't have to have any regrets because we knew we did everything we could. And she proclaims, you write, despite all that women have done to fit in and well-intentioned men who have done so much along the way, we have only been able to get so far in a man's world. After decades of making strides, we have reached a plateau. A man's path turned into a rut. Our dependence on the old male models and our belief that following their paths would eventually work out for us has ended up sustaining the very power system that keep women from succeeding. So, it what took me 53 years to write those few sentences. <laughs> you know, it took me 53 years of living to understand what was actually happening, what my life was actually about. Well, <laughs> so, sure. Until then, I had not been able to consider it that way. And as the vernacular in 2020 goes, there's a lot to unpack there. <laughs> um, so, so yeah. what, what is this new path you're advocating for women and how is it forged? So what I wanted, so I never thought of myself, I would never have described myself as a woman living in a man's world. Okay. Prior to writing this book years ago, when I worked in the Obama white house, some of my female colleagues would say that like, Oh, we have to work harder. And Oh, it's still a man's world. And I thought that was defeatist. Right. Mm. And I thought that was sort of victim me. And that is not me. Like my life has not been one long subjugation to men. Like that is not who I am. Right. Um, and also unfair to my male colleagues who've always been really supportive of me. Mm. Um, and, but like, why would you, it's hard enough for women. Why would you go out of your way to proclaim yourself to be an outsider? right? I didn't think it was a man's world. It was just the world. And I thought I was doing great. And then what I came to realize was I and the other women I worked with, all the women I know who work, I mean, this is going to resonate with them, mm. who work so hard to make everything work, right? Who work so hard to um, you know, be the ones that like make your operation run, you know, women run the world. We don't, we, women make the world run. We don't yet run the world, um, and put all that effort into it. And I thought it was going to pay off. And what I realized was I am not doing great in the world. I am doing great making the man's world run well for them. You know, this is why it's like women came into the workplace, worked really hard Made a bunch, you know, got a bunch of success, but then, you know, what, what, like how many times have you, I heard said a lot about me. She's a great number two. Mm. 
We couldn't possibly do it without her. Wow, she makes everything work. Is she the right job for number one? No, I don't think so. She's just not the right fit. And, you know, so what I realized was I'm just, now we've gotten to the point where we're just perpetuating these power systems. You see, you know, younger men, you know, I, I had great male colleagues, but the guys always rose faster than me. I became White House communications director. I was 10 years older than the guy who had it before. I was the deputy to somebody, to a man who was 10 years younger than me. But you achieved it. You, you did. I did. But why, why, why did I have to wait 10 years? Right. Why do I have to, why, why, what was, 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 was Dan Pfeiffer really 10 years more talented than me? He would say he is not right. Dan would definitely say he was not 10 years more talented than me. So this is, you know, something else is happening here. And what I want women to know, like you are not, here's where you are not wrong to have the imposter syndrome. You are still, even though it is 2020 America, we are still all of us operating under power systems in politics and in business that were built by men for men hundreds of years ago. Mm. And, you know, importantly, you know, market systems, things like they were built to value men's efforts, not specifically to value men's efforts over women, but that is the result of what, you know, of what, of, of how these markets were built. That is why the U.S. women's soccer team, which keeps winning World Cup titles, has to go to court mm. to fight to get paid the same as the men because we just, you know, for we do not value women the same way that we do men. And I want women to know that, not to feel defeated, but to be empowered by how much we have accomplished, to understand why you had this sort of nagging doubt that I don't quite feel like I fit in here. You're right. And you don't have anything more to prove. You don't need to retrofit yourself to, you know, to act like men. You can be yourself in the world. And I think as women who try to fit into a, a man's world, we have uh, developed a lot of skills. Like, you know, I'm very astute because I'm always looking to see where someone is coming from so I understand where I can quite fit in. I'm used to working very hard um, and I set high standards for myself and I don't necessarily expect all of my efforts to pan out. So I, I had the sense of like well-being just because I did a job well done. That helped me get through Hillary's loss. I'll tell you this, Mark, there were a lot of the men in the Clinton campaign were broken in a way that the women were not after we lost. And I, I think part of that was, you know, they were not used to having that sense of I worked really hard and it didn't work. Um, but those, those don't, don't shun those skills. Those skills will serve you very well going forward. What you need to leave behind is the doubt. What you need to leave behind is a sense that you have to censor yourself every time you open your mouth because you know if you say something, you're going to get challenged or you're not sure that you can defend it. You have to speak your mind. You have to understand that your perspective matters. And so what I try to do in the book is chapter by chapter, and this is why I made it a Declaration of Independence to be really specific for women, uh, to give them real advice because sometimes um, advice for women that you know tries to empower them can be too general. Um, and say, you know, you know, you think your voice doesn't matter. Here is the history of why you might think your voice does not matter. You know, consider all the lessons you observe every day that tell us that men's voices are more interesting than women's and leave that behind and appreciate that, you know, that when you change the way you engage in the world, you change the world. And you see women in the last few years doing that in so many different ways, from politics to arts, 
uh, journalism, uh, you know, and I think that that's what it looks like for women to create their own path. So you call the 2017 Women's March, which occurred the day after Donald Trump's inauguration, a turning point. Since then, we've seen the Me Too movement and now the nomination of Kamala Harris as the Democratic vice presidential nominee. It seems like despite Donald Trump, women have gained huge momentum. Why do you think that women have hit a plateau? I think women hit a plateau because we were playing by the wrong set of rules. And that's what, for a lot of women in America, that is what the 2016 election sort of revealed to us, right? We had doubts all along that I'm working really hard. I don't really seem to be getting anywhere. You know, like a frustration, I think, was building in women just across the board. And then it's not so much that I think Hillary Clinton lost. It's that somebody like him won. And I know that not all women in America, obviously, otherwise he would not have won, feel this way. And plenty of women voted for him. Um, but for millions of us, his, you know, I was really worried on, you know, one of the fears I had on November, Wednesday, November 9, 2016 was what are women going to think? They're going to be devastated. They're going to feel chastened, mm. cowed. It's not at all what happened. What happened was it was confirmation for women. Like I was right. I was right to have those doubts. I was right to know that we were playing by the wrong set of rules. So we are going to go like we are doing things differently from here on out and started with the women's march. And I think that, you know, well, in the, in those, you know, in the fact that women, so many women marched is embedded lessons we need to do today, like have each other's back believe in the believe in your own power to um, make a difference in the world believe that your voice um, that your voice matters but women supporting other women is a really uh, big piece of what I think has to happen now sure has Donald Trump's very patriarchal presidency inadvertently been good for women well, it, um, I think it has had, I think it has spurred this change in women. I think this, this change was, you know, people ask me a lot about me too. And if I think that was caused by Trump, I think Trump's, you know, I think that this reckoning was, I think America was on course to have a reckoning around race and gender. Mm -hmm. Um, and I definitely saw that in 2015 and 16 kind of rising up everywhere I went, every state I went to, and I went to almost every state I saw something that told me Donald Trump could win, you know, something, something that maybe that um, made me understand, uh, the like really passionate support for Bernie Sanders. Right. Um, so I think we are due to this. I think Trump sort of like helped spur these changes on because women, and what's so inspiring about women's reaction was they were like, Nope, that is not, it's, you know, that at, at their gut, they knew this was, this was the wrong outcome. And it just fortified them to fight harder and understand and sort of wake up, not be complacent. You know, definitely for me, I thought women were on this fine path. And I thought, you know, that, you know, you realize, oh, we are not on, no, <laughs> we are not on a good path. We are not, you know, and this is incumbent upon, I mean, I, I look back, part of what I write about also is the history of suffrage. And it's like, you look back and realize you're part of this long line of women that have like always been pushing, pushing, pushing for more. And this is, you know, I think this is the, what's incumbent upon the women in America now to like pick up this fight and propel it forward. Cause it's not a herd. Hmm. In the book, you write that women should more boldly proclaim 
their ambition. And I quote you in saying, because stifling our ambitions is not just preventing us from pursuing our dreams, but also perpetuating the sense that those dreams are still out of reach for women. So how do you envision women being more forthright in expressing their ambitions? I am a very ambitious woman, and it's something I never even admitted to myself for two reasons. One, I thought it was an unappealing characteristic in women. You hear it all the time, right? Well, she's just, you hear, you hear it described about a young man, like consider, you know, Pete Buttigieg. Wow, he's just this ambitious, earnest young man. We recognize him right away. We, our history is filled with stories of young, ambitious men like Pete Buttigieg going on to do great things. We can imagine right away. I think that's why people, you know, he seems, I mean, by the way, he seems great and all. <laughs> but uh, so is Kirsten Gillibrand. But you look at Kirsten Gillibrand, relatively young senator from New York. She's just so ambitious. She's always, um, you know, she's always like, she's, she all seems to be like, you know, trying to figure out her next move and positioning herself for her next move. Well, Pete Buttigieg is not even 40 years old and he's already run for statewide office and DNC chair and been mayor for eight years. He also is always positioning himself for the next job. But we think that's a go-getter in him. We think it's unappealing in Kirsten Gillibrand. And um, the other second thing that uh, reason why I think I held back on my expressing my own ambitions is because I didn't want to be disappointed. I didn't want to have to live through, you know, uh, out at the humiliation that comes from saying, I really want this and then not getting it. And so you just hold, you just hold back. And when I worked for Hillary, we got all sorts of advice from everyone from pollsters to psychiatrists about how a woman seeking power could um, talk about uh, why she wanted the job as president in a way that would hide her by prevent her from looking too ambitious and, you know, convince you she get, she had enough experience to do the job, but not so much experience that women would be put off by all her accomplishments because they had to, and you're just like, oh my God, what are we doing? <laughs> you know, none of, obviously none of it worked. We tried it all. Obviously none of it worked. And I just think you just have to plow through this. It's not that it's a little uncomfortable, but it's not that hard, not compared to what women, you know, hundred years ago had to do and just say like, yeah, I really want this. I really, you know, I'm super ambitious. I've written two books. I want to write more. And that, and that alone is not enough. I want this book to sweep the country. And I want that because I want women to, you know, to like hear this message, but I also want it for myself. Like I am that ambitious. <laughs> um, and, you know, I want to really matter. I want what I do mm. to really matter. In the world. And I, and, and just women just don't say those things. And I think that that's, we have to normalize it. Um, Kirsten Gillibrand, I give her a lot of credit for normalizing, uh, you know, women's ambition. She talks about it, um, a lot. Um, you know, Elizabeth Warren, on the other hand, um, her entire stump speech, I, I think, if somebody pays attention to women's politicians, was designed to make us feel comfortable with her ambition. She talked about how her dream job was to be a public school teacher. Mm. Right? That's a, that's a role we're comfortable with women in. And here's the yeah. genius part about her. She put it in the past. She said, I've lived my dream job. It was to be a public school teacher. In case you thought my dream job was to be first woman president, that's right. not it. Right. She already, had, already it. had it. I already had it, right? Yeah. So yeah. smart. But she's making that really smart argument. Meanwhile, Joe Biden, Bernie Sanders, and Pete Buttigieg are running out, you know, out just like running normal campaigns and they're not having to ca get caught up and, you know, explaining to us why we should be okay with their ambition, right? I think that's, it's not like 
we're all sexist and that's why the men have it easier. It's the women are just still trying to get over some hurdles that don't exist for men. What does the nomination of Kamala Harris uh, as the Democratic vice presidential nominee do for women in America? So role, role models are so important. I think it's just, I mean, particularly if she wins, I, to, to, I just, it, again, it was not something I appreciated before 16 to see a woman in that um, position, to have it be normal, to have it be three times now that a woman's been nominated, to have it be a black woman, to have it be a woman whose, you know, name is, <laughs> people aren't so sure how to pronounce all, all of it. Um, you know, it just sort of incorporates her into the American story, which I think is really, it's a really important thing. And um, I happen to know her. I um, am close with her sister. We worked together in the Clinton campaign. Um, and I, I love her and she's fun and smart and like all the things she appears to be. But it is sort of remarkable to watch her go from being Kamala Harris, you know, as a United States senator, to being that woman who in hundreds of years and all the struggle, it was like leading to her, right? All of a sudden, she's like just this different sort of figure. It's a, yeah, it's a pretty magical thing to watch. So it seems to me that trope of the ambitious woman Mm -hmm. seemed to fade pretty quickly with Kamala Harris. Do do you get a sense that we might be over that, Jennifer? Um, I don't know. I don't think we're totally over it, but, you know, she was, before she was named, there were a lot of stories written about concern. Could Joe Biden trust her because she was obviously ambitious and and wants to be president? Could he have a vice president that, um, uh, that held presidential ambitions. Well, Joe Biden was vice president for Barack Obama for eight years. He ran against Barack Obama in 2008, became his vice president, was a very loyal, good partner, obviously continued to harbor presidential ambitions all along the way, and he managed it just fine. So the, it was, you know, it was too bad that Kamala Harris got called out for being ambitious, but she got the job anyway. Right. 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 Um, and you know, thus far, I, I, you know, I, I, think as we go on we may see story we may see storylines about oh is there is there tension between the harris camp and the biden camp um you know because they think she still wants to be president but you know, we haven't seen that yet and i think that the press are more tuned to this as well that they're less likely to immediately buy into that kind of uh, storyline because they too are looking and realizing oh we you know we got to be more thoughtful when we're writing about women when we you know what's really what's really in our heads when we're thinking that uh kamala harris's ambition is something to write about and joe biden's is not right you know joe biden you worked with joe biden Mm -hmm. in the obama white house what is the greatest misconception that we have about joe biden Prior to the Democratic convention, I'm not sure that people appreciated, you know, why his like emotions are right there at the surface, um, why he has so much empathy, why I I think that people, unless you really understood his life story, you couldn't, um, you couldn't know that. Um, What I think people may not know about him is just what a good politician he is. And um, honestly, I think that there are some similarities between him and LBJ in understanding um, you, you know, and understanding how important personal relationships are in working power, and how you need to make to you know touch base with somebody a couple times just to see how they're doing before you ever ask something of them. 
And, uh, you know, he really sees the three dimensions of politics, which is the policy, the personal uh, connections, and, you know, how this, how, how politics impact that. And then just really understanding people, the third, you know, like an empathetic, the empathetic piece and how you motivate a country to do that. And I'm not sure that people understand that he's just a, that he's a very skilled leader that way. Mm. Mm-hmm. As a seasoned pro in politics, mm-hmm. what advice would you give to Joe Biden and Kamala Harris as they embark on their campaign for the White House? She will be attacked much, often, a lot. Mm. Um, she'll, I think she'll get a lot of incoming, particularly from the uh, from the right. It does not mean she's doing anything wrong. It means that they find that she uh, that a woman is easier lightning rod, particularly a woman of color, than a white man, older white man in America. Um, they still have, they still, they, uh, as polarized as the country is, I think there's still more to learn about what the Biden-Harris ticket would do about them personally. Uh, we all know, I think the Trump, the views on Trump are pretty solidified, but those two have a proactive story that they could tell about where they see America going, uh, their own personal stories, you know, how they, how they fit into that sort of arc of the, um, American story. I think that people feel so lost right now. They want to know that, um, you know, what's come before us, we're all pieces that we're building to something new. And I think that they could tell, they have room to tell that story and have America want to hear it in a way that perhaps Trump does not. Is Donald Trump, despite his manifest flaws, a good communicator? Yes, very much so. And I have to say, this is, um, you know, we're just at the beginning of the Republican convention, but I think that their programming thus far has been really effective. Um, Republicans, in, for a lot, for many months, Republicans have heard that, uh, you know, Trump is really botching COVID and there's a big race problem. And they're told all, over and over again that uh, the president is uh, racist and fomenting, you know, a, you know, racial divides. And they, you know, at least thus far in their convention have told a story that is scary about America, but it's not over the top. Mm. and uh, worked in a lot of black leaders to be part of their convention that I think um, probably will win some number of black voters to their side in 2016. He, uh, Trump got 8% of the vote. That doesn't sound like a lot, but Mitt Romney only got 6 and 2% is a lot. Uh, in close elections, I think that that number could grow. And also for white Republicans who are concerned that people think they're racist because they support Donald Trump, it sort of assuages their concerns too. So he told an important story. If, if Republicans are looking for ways to rally back to his side, I think the Republican convention is telling, while wholly divorced from truth, I must <laughs> to be clear, they are telling, if you want to hear a story that makes you feel okay about voting for Donald Trump, they're telling an effective story and they're good. Jennifer, what makes him good as a communicator? Um, I think he understands at a gut level what uh, is going to connect with someone, uh, uh, somebody emotionally, but also what their place in America is, right? I think he tells a story. If you are 
Yeah, if, if you're somebody who feels a little alienated in a very changing America, um, you want to go back to the way things were, which I, I, you know, I think means when America was more white, when there, you know, where the economy worked in a simpler way. Um, he tells a story that where it's not your fault, uh, you were right to have the grievances that you have, and assures you that of your place in America. And I think that, you know, since Reagan, um, issues have mattered less and where you, the story you tell about America and where somebody fits into it is really, really powerful. Donald Trump has a 10 point advantage over Joe Biden on the economy right now. Mm -hmm. We are living in polls and we are living through the greatest economic downturn since the great depression and he has a 10-point advantage over a man who was vice president at a time where the economy recovered from a historic recession. What is that about? And that's all in the messaging is, is what you're saying. That is that. not about policy. That is not, that is, I think economy is code for a lot of people about how they feel about where the country is going, their own ability to do well in America, right? Mm-hmm. He tells a really powerful story about that. Um, and he doesn't get caught up in truth. He doesn't mm. let facts get in his way the way Democrats do. Um, by the way, I think Democrats are right to get let facts get in their way because Part of the reason why part of our appeal is that people is that we tell facts is that we are on the side of truth, um, right? It doesn't work for Democrats to just tell stories with no basis in the truth. That would fail. Um, but it is why he, I think, is so successful. You started your career in 1988. You've risen to great heights in the political world. You become a best-selling author. What advice would you give the woman who's entering the workforce today? Um, what I love about millennial and uh, among the things I love about millennial and Gen Z women is they are the most likely demographic of women to believe in America that men have it easier than women, uh, which is surprising, right? You would think it would be older women, but they mm. are they are the demographic that thinks that. And I love that about them because they are impatient and they should be impatient. I, um, I told, um, so I think that you know, for young women, you are not wrong to think that men have it easier. It doesn't mean men are your enemy or they're trying to hold you back. It means that we're still living under power systems that, you know, that, that sort of recognize men in leadership positions easier. And like, that is what you have to push against. You have to, um, you're going to have to find your own path. That means, you know, I had a younger woman, um, a reporter, uh, I hear from a lot of women reporters, I try to help mentor them when they run up against some, you know, tough situations. And Mm. she said, you know, what do you think the role of our generation is? I said, the role of my generation is, I'm Gen X, the role of my generation is sort of be a bridge and point out to both sides, like, why women have it harder. Your your generation is to not expect to do worse than the men and not tolerate it when it happens. I have always expected to not do as well as men. And when you think Mm. about that, like that's just kind of crazy. Why, you Mm. know, these are all the things that we've internalized. That's why the book is she proclaims. Cause we need to say these things out loud. Don't expect to do worse than the men. Don't tolerate it when it happens. Understand that you're in an operating world. That's not built free, you know, not built for you. And just believe in the power of your own voice to make, to make a difference. Some women, younger women are not in the position to, 
um, you know, to push back and demand that they get paid what they were their worth in the workplace because you know their livelihood depends on it. So um, you know, for older women, women, you know, my generation, we have to defend those women. It's on us, right? We can't otherwise we're perpetuating these cycles. So if you have the power to speak up, defend women, you know, particularly for white women to defend all people of color in your workplace, include, you know, encourage your workplace to bring if it's not very diverse to bring more diversity to it. It makes the work better, but you know, we're also, you know, helping to push up against and like overturn those sort of obstacles that keep all marginalized people from reaching their full potential. Jennifer Palmieri, congratulations on She Proclaims and thanks so much for being with us today. Thanks, Mark. I really appreciate it. It was great. It was great talking with you. My thanks to Jennifer Palmieri, to our sponsors, St. David's Healthcare and the Moody Foundation. And thanks to you for joining us. You can purchase a signed copy of Jennifer Palmieri's book, She Proclaims, or any of the books covered in previous episodes through our online store at lbjstore.com. If you've enjoyed this episode, subscribe, rate, and review us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'm Mark Updegrove. See you next time.